Well, good afternoon. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and thank you for being here, especially, especially on this kind of chilly um, afternoon, and we're just so delighted that you're here because this is a very, very um, special day and really interesting coming on the heels of that pretty interesting uh, last game of the World Series. Now, I have to tell you, the St. Louis Cardinals, I remember um, my grandfather was the type of baseball fanatic that would have, and I'll age myself as I keep talking, so you'll, you'll understand. He would have one game on the television and two going on with the radios and listening to them simultaneously. And he lived in, we, they lived in Springfield, Illinois. And the big deal was when the Cardinals played the team that had Willie Mays on. And we would have to go, oh boy, that was something. So his loyalties were starting. And then when my parents got divorced, I told my mom that she could marry Willie Mays, um, Maury Wills. Yeah, I thought he was pretty cute. And uh, she never forgot that one. So. When we found out that we were um, able to be one of the libraries in the country to have pride and passion, the African-American baseball experience, I let out a little cheer. And it's taken us a number of years to get it here because so many libraries in this country wanted the exhibit and we had to really get in line. And Judy Cooper, our head of programs and exhibits, I wish you'd give her a hand because she stuck in there. She stuck in there because only 25 libraries, and we had to put um, petitions together and proposals and everything, only 25 were selected to have this exhibit. And it is uh, a combination of the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum in Cooperstown, New York, and the American Library Association. So I hope you get a chance to look at the exhibit downstairs because it features the challenges and the, really the history of the African-American baseball players experience in this country. And also in the second floor gallery, we'll have another special exhibit in partnership with the Black Athletes and Lost Legends organization, the Negro Leagues in Baltimore and beyond. And also you'll get a chance in the very furnace central hall, and I'll be one of the first ones down there to actually purchase jerseys and caps um, that are available as well. So today's program wouldn't have been possible without a number of people. And the first uh, I'd like to mention, Mr. Luther Atkinson of the Satchel Page All-Stars, who is here with us today. Now, you may know that I'm calling him because he will be downstairs as well, and Mr. Al Burroughs from the Indianapolis Clowns and the New York Black Yankees. So I hope you get a chance to interact with them and hear from them because they have a lot of stories to tell. We also um, hope to, as the exhibit is here, um, have uh, Mr. Sam Allen from the Kansas City Monarchs, Mr. Jim Whedon from the Harrisburg Giants, Pedro Sierra from the um, Detroit Stars, Eddie Banks from the Newark Eagles, and Mrs. Geraldine Day, the widow of Leon Day who played for the Baltimore Elite Giants, the Baltimore Black Sox, and the Brooklyn and the Newark Eagles. So we want to thank you 
too, for being here today, and also Mrs. Leon Day for all the help she's given us. So one more hand of applause, please. <laughs> now, um, I mentioned that there were other people that have helped, um, Dr. Robert um, Hieronymus and Dr. Meyerhoff. They are co-hosts of the 21st Century Radio and Ray Banks and Tanya Thomas of Black Athletes and Lost Legends. Mr. Banks, please stand up. Oh, good. Now, to the first program connected to this wonderful exhibit. It's called, If It Ain't Got That Swing, Black Baseball and Music in the Jim Crow Era. Across the history of black baseball and ballplayers and musicians played off of each other in a lifetime Mutual Admiration and Inspiration Society. As my grandmother say, would say, it was mutual between them. They were constantly meeting on their travels and crossing paths as they crossed the country. And so today we have two wonderful speakers to discuss this. Please welcome to the Pratt Library and Baltimore, Dr. Lawrence Hogan, and I happen to have a circulating copy of his book that he's going to talk about. Senior Professor of History at Union County College. It's called Shades of Glory, wonderful book. And Dr. Robert, and if I mispronounce it, you'll get me, uh, Savornik, Savornik uh, Professor of History at Rhode Island College. Please help me welcome them. Particularly thanks to Judy, who I know put a lot of work into making this exhibit possible and having us here today. It's a pleasure to be at this library. I was here back in 1990, 91, with an exhibit that I had put together back then that was traveling around the country. And it was a wonderful place to come to then, and it's wonderful today to come to it as well. Um, we were introduced, I was at a program out at Bucknell University last week, uh, and the person who introduced us uh, looked out at the audience, it was a good crowd, and he said, I want to say to all you Phillies fans, it's nice that you're here because you've got a lot of time on your hands right now. <laughs> well, I guess we could say that about the Orioles, but then I came to the mic and I said, well, uh, I feel for all those Philly fans because I'm a Yankee fan and I've got a lot of time on my hands too, no postseason. Uh, this young lady, who's our sign person today, one of the things that we do at these programs, and I'll do it right at the outset, is to pick sign. This is a surprise to her. Is it Enid? Nina. Nina, I'm sorry, Nina. Uh, Nina doesn't expect this, and uh, yet we're going to do it because it's special, and she's obviously a special lady. We like to appoint an honorary Negro leaguer for the day's events, and so we're going to turn. Nina into that honorary Negro Leaguer, and what better way to do it than to ask her if she wouldn't mind putting on an official jersey from the Negro Leagues, and of course it's very appropriate, it's uh, the Elite Giants, <laughs> the Baltimore Elite Giants, you know, not Elite. Uh, my task today is basically to frame for you the story that Bob Savornik is going to bring to you of music and baseball and their interactions. Let's see how this works. Oh, yes, you certainly qualify now as a <laughs> elite giant. 
my task is to bring to you today the frame into which Bob is going to set the larger piece that he's going to do on the connections between baseball and music. And they are very, very rich connections that we are delighted by the more we dive into this history. I think the essential point uh, to remember here at the outset is that while we're talking about baseball, some of you are undoubtedly baseball fans, some of you aren't baseball fans. Well, well, maybe not. Maybe you're all baseball fans. <laughs> you wouldn't be here, but varying degrees of. But the story is about much more than what went on on the playing field. The story is about a black institution coming into being, an African-American institution, would have been called the Negro Institution back in the 1880s, professional black baseball, as a reflection of a world that obviously is very different than the world we live in today. Uh, I always, you know, debate where I'm going to start this story when I build the frame that Bob will then fit himself into. We could go back to slavery times. The opening sections of the book that was referenced just a bit ago take you into interviews that were done with ex-slaves up in their 70s and 80s and some of them in their 90s in the 1930s, the famous WPA project that went back and probed into what life was like in the plantation south of the 1830s and 40s. Now, none of the interviewers asked questions about baseball, but they did ask questions about recreation. And we have easily 20 or 25, probably more, because I haven't done a systematic study, but I've gone through some of these uh, interviews, of, of slaves just coming forward and saying, yes, we played the game. You know, we played the game on the plantations, uh, downtime from the fields. There's a phrase that I frequently use in my teaching, present at the creation. If you're present at the creation, that makes you pretty significant. Baseball is being created back there, as we know the game today, becoming the national pastime. So African Americans are there right at the very beginning. I could go into uh, the 1880s and the 1890s and talk about a Supreme Court decision in 1896. That's a good place to start in some ways, these presentations, because indeed what had happened on baseball fields, it had happened in many other places as well, but it had happened on baseball fields in the 1870s and 80s, post-Reconstruction times, when the separation comes into play. Blacks have to be here, whites have to be here. I frequently go to a game in, in, in Newark, New Jersey in 1887, July the 14th, 1887, when a touring team of white major leaguers coming in from Chicago, one of the best teams in the majors, that Adrian Cap Anson, one of the fathers of baseball at that point in time, bringing his team in, the predecessor of the Cubs today, the Chicago White Stockings, and he gets word that there are a couple of black players, a couple of Negroes, well, he would have called them niggers, on that team in, in Baltimore, I mean Baltimore, in Newark, that he's going to play against, the little giants of the International League. Well, they were very fine players. One of them is George Stovey, the star pitcher for that team. He would go on to win more than 30 games that year, and he had a battery mate named Moses Fleetwood Walker, and, and Fleetwood Walker was uh, his catcher, and the first black to play in the major leagues. He had played in 1884 with a major league team in the American Association. Well, when, when Anson hears that these two black players are going to play that day, he says, no, no, I'm not putting my team out on the field if they're there that day. And they were made to disappear. 
You hear a lot about, they played the game, but the, minus the two black stars. You hear a lot about the gentleman's agreement that kept blacks out of baseball. Well, it was an unwritten agreement. In this instance, it turns out to be a written agreement because the next day, we have the minutes from the International League Board of Trustees, Board of Governors, and they write into their bylaws, no more contracts will be allowed for teams in this league for African-American players, for Negro players. What's happening in baseball on this particular day, they were made to be invisible, these two wonderful stars, is that that core of black players who played on integrated teams in this period in the 70s and 80s and 90s are being squeezed out by American segregation. 1896, the Supreme Court of the United States, what's it doing in Plessy versus Ferguson? That infamous separate but equal case. Well, it's, it's just confirming what's already happened in society. And one of the places that it's happened is out on ball fields. Blacks are being squeezed over here, whites are being put over here, and they're not supposed to mix. Huh? Separate but equal, they would say. I always say when I get to this point for young people in the audience, students who study this history, anyone who studies this history, you really do need to read the, the dissenting opinion in that, uh, that uh, Plessy versus Ferguson case from John Marshall Harlan, who had been a slaveholder himself. Huh? I think it's a stronger case legally than the case that was made in 54 in Brown versus Board against segregation. It really is a marvelous decision to read. So all of those places, we could go to uh, certainly Atlantic City in the 1916-17 period and see the great migration at work, which is of course the fundamental, most essential thing that happens to blacks in this country in the 20th century that they begin to get out of the south in large numbers and begin to settle in northern and urban enclaves. And there in 1916 in Atlantic City, an entire team comes up from Jacksonville, Florida, composed of, I wonder if that maybe this is, uh, Bob, I don't want to go too long with this, but maybe this is a good place to bring Pop into play because Pop would be on one of those Bacharach Giants teams. This particular team becomes the Atlantic City Bacharach Giants. They were imported by a black businessman in Atlantic City who had gone to the white mayor, Harry Bacharach. When you go to Atlantic City today, you see Bacharach Drive. Uh, he's starting his career out, and he's got a black constituency now. He's got blacks in Atlantic City, and he wants their votes. And this black businessman comes to him and says, I got a good team. You want to lend me some support? And sure enough, Harry does, and the name Bacharach Giants comes into being. <laughs> they came up on May the 5th. Chance Cummings tells us, one of the members of that team. On May the 8th, they were down, this whole group of blacks from Jacksonville, Florida now, brought up by this white mayor and this black businessman. On May the 8th, they were down in, in, in City Hall, registered to vote, you know, who they're going to vote for. And two days later, several of them had political jobs in Atlantic City, one of whom, Chance Cummings, would hold one forever. But, but that's a sign of the migration, the great migration. And, and you, you see how baseball then fits into it. It connects to other things, as Bob is going to connect it to music for you. Quickly, two other places. We could go to so many places, one of which ties in. I think I'll save the, the, the pop section here. We'll use the video at the end of the program for the Cooperstown one. I don't want to cut into Bob's time too much. But let me briefly take you to a place where John Henry Lloyd is. But so are the Baltimore Black Sox. 
This is a team that comes into being, I think, in 1913. By the 1920s, 1923, the Baltimore Black Sox are one of the founding members of the second Negro Major League, the Eastern Colored League. By 1930, on July the 5th, 1930, we find them in Yankee Stadium, the first time that Yankee Stadium has been opened to African-American baseball. Of all things, donated. It's a new stadium. It's only seven years old. Donated by Jacob Rupert, the owner of the Yankees, to the struggling brotherhood of sleeping car porters. I, again, I'm going to assume that I'm not going to get into the details of, but let me say, if I say Martin Luther King, I can say in the same breath, A. Philip Randolph, and be right on the mark. As a Philip Randolph is that important a figure. He's struggling to build the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters at this point in time. The first black union becomes vice president. Dr. King gets his platform in 63 at the famous march because it's A. Philip Randolph who organizes it, who puts the call out along with Bayard Rustin. So this is a, you know, a pretty important event in terms of Mr. Randolph building a, a position for himself in American life. And he ends up securing $3,000 for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters from a benefit game that's played at Yankee Stadium on that day, July the 5th, 1930, between the Lincoln Giants of New York and the Baltimore Black Sox. Huh? Larger connections always into. Oh, you, I got to stop because there's just too much. I got to turn this over to you. But uh, that same Baltimore Black Sox team in 1929 fielded something that the newspapers called the million dollar infield. Well, they might, although it was a very troubled infield in lots of ways. If you know Oliver Ghost Marcel or Boujum, uh, Judd Wilson, you know that they were tough guys. Uh, uh, my friend Monty Irvin, I once challenged him and Max Manning, my other friend, and Leon, uh, my wonderful friend Leon, who's so much connected into Baltimore baseball. I once challenged them to put together their all-evil team. You know, the guys who were the toughest guys to get along with. You wouldn't look, you know, be very careful in the clubhouse. And Boujum and, uh, uh, um, well, not, uh, the infield was Warfield. Uh, it was Dick Lundy. It was uh, Boojum Wilson, and now I'm, what did I say? Who did I just say, the other player? Come on, Robert, you're not paying Oh, Ghost Marcel. Ghost Marcel was playing third base. Marcel and Boojum Wilson would be on any all-evil team. But that was the million-dollar infield, because they were that good, these four guys. They really were that good amongst the stars of Negro League baseball. So there's a little bit of the frame that I think Bob will now elucidate with. I'll, I'll leave it at this, and at the end, I'll come back and say a few more things. But I think that most people who come to a program of this sort come expecting to hear about Jackie Robinson and the integration of huh? baseball, which is as large an event as you can possibly imagine in American social history. But that's not what we're about today. We're about that era back there before Jackie when times were tough and the African-American population had to do for itself out of its communal resources what that larger world out there was saying, you can't do, you can't be, you can't be this, you can't be that. And they built the Negro Leagues. They built Negro professional baseball. And while they were building it, uh, some interesting music connected into too. And that's what Robert Savornik is going to lead you into right now. 
Well, first let me say I'm so happy to be in Baltimore, a city which has had a long tradition of African-American baseball, both at the amateur level, the semi-professional level, and of course, um, as Larry mentioned, at the professional level. But it's also a town which, from what I gather, has had a wonderful jazz history as well. Um, just earlier today, I had an opportunity to head to the first floor, uh, where there is a wonderful exhibit called The Roots of Jazz in Baltimore. Uh, I have to tell you, um, during the question and answer session, which comes at the end of the program, uh, oftentimes those question and answer sessions turn into you telling us, uh, you telling me in particular, uh, a little bit more about the jazz scene and maybe how the jazz scene connected with the sports scene in, in, in your city. So let me just remind you that at the end of the program, we'll have a question and answer. But please, that question and answer could also very easily be um, you telling us a little bit about uh, the connection or sometimes we'll say the collision between uh, sports and music. Okay. Um, I'm not sure we're having any a uh, little bit of a the technical difficulty here. Yeah, that's okay. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the program in terms of an overview. Uh, this is an alternate way, really, of telling the history of black baseball, uh, history of black baseball through music. And what we do is we take a look at three critical or what we call pivotal moments in the history of professional. The first is actually the origins uh, of, of professional black baseball. It takes us back to 1920 in Kansas City. Uh, we then take a look at a, a very, very critical moment, but I'll call it a moment of resurgence in the early 1930s, when the National League was uh, that this bans temporarily because of the problems associated with the Great Depression. And it will take a magnificent person from Pittsburgh, a guy by the name of Gus Greeley, who co-resurrect Negro League Baseball of um, American Wars so disaster. The last place we take you is really the end of uh, African-American baseball. And that is a slow ending. Um, but some say, and I agree, uh, the beginning of the end of black baseball starts with integration. Uh, Evan Manley, uh, who uh, ran the uh, New York Eagles for so many years, said, you know, my dream was to own a black baseball team. And she realized that dream. But then she said, when Jackie Robinson finally integrated professional baseball, that dream died. But in a sense, another dream was born. So she always referred to that as a bittersweet moment in her life when her desire and her dream sort of transformed into another dream. So those are the three pivotal moments we'll look at today. The origins, uh, crisis, but also resurgence. And that is a sign of resurgence. And finally, the last, you know, the end, or what we call the denouement of black baseball. Remember, black baseball didn't last really until 1960. Uh, but between 46 and 60, uh, you know, we get less and less teams. Quality is there. The men who play that game were just as good as the men who played that game at any point in African-American baseball history. But the number Come of teams increased as it responds to the integration of baseball uh, after 46. Um, we do this by taking a look at three cities. Uh, the first city we'll take a look at is uh, Kansas City. Uh, and I know jazz doesn't begin in Kansas City. That's, that's New Orleans. Uh, but so many of us think of Kansas City as the cradle, really, of jazz. Uh, so that, that's where we begin our journey. We then move to Pittsburgh. We talk a little bit about that. Pittsburgh plays this critical role in the resurgence of black baseball. When the league goes under, uh, Pittsburgh really comes to the rescue of African-American baseball. 
Uh, and then finally, we take a look at New York and Newark, New Jersey, um, as we take a look at the end, not only of black baseball, but it's really in that post-war period where we see a lot of the big bands beginning to disband, where we see a lot of uh, the solo artists uh, who have performed with big bands moving off into their own. So this transition right, out of uh, a black baseball from the Negro Leagues to integration in some ways is mirrored by what's happening with big bands in the 40s and 50s, especially in New York. They are running into some difficult times um, as well. So, um, with that, I think we'll, we'll begin the, yeah, that's okay. That's all right. Actually, you know, I went into computer. Um, I went into computer and then just hit the, um, yeah, and then Kingston. If it ain't got that swing, up, uh, the second one. There you go, yeah. There we are. So we'll have some images for you today to look at. Um, there we are. Uh, and the title of It Ain't Got That Swing, um, which is a takeoff on swing music, baseball music, and black cultural expression, with an emphasis on black cultural expression, because what we're going to argue a little bit today uh, is that uh, music, which is oftentimes you know, synonymous with black cultural expression, but not always sports. And what we're going to argue is that in some ways baseball is the athletic counterpart um, to jazz, uh, the, the athletic counterpart to African-American music in terms of black cultural expression. And uh, we'll try to make that case as we move along. We go to the big picture. Novelist Ralph Ellison says it so beautifully. Um, I'll just give you a chance to read this for a second because uh, he really does set the stage for us. And again, essentially what he's saying here is, is that if you take a look at the United States, you know, without the presence of an African-American aesthetic, without the presence of an African-American style, that jazz-paced style, uh, nothing would be the same. And what a beautiful way to open uh, in terms of a general comment on the critical uh, importance of black cultural expression. We then narrow it a little bit with Duke Ellington, who actually gives us a definition of swing or swing music. Uh, and that's a great picture of Josh Gibson. Um, if there's any picture that I love, 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 it's this one simply because uh, it kind of, it symbolizes that, that tremendous creative, expressive spirit that I think you see in, in baseball and in music. That could almost be a microphone as well in some ways. But anyway, Ellington says that swing is that unmechanical but hard driving and fluid rhythm over which soloists improvise as they play. And that is a great definition for African-American baseball during this time period as well, uh, because it's hard driving, no question, uh, but it's fluid. And there's a different type of game being played by African-Americans during the 20s, during the 30s, during the 40s. Uh, and it is one which is based uh, not expressly uh, or not exclusively on improvisation, but there's a heck of a lot of improvisation going on. Uh, so when you take a look at what we'll call this collision between sport or collision between baseball and music, Ellington hits it, I think, um, perfectly for us. Um, when the director introduced us, she said that there was a strong connection, what we call a personal connection between 
uh, black ball players and jazz musicians. And the individual that comes to represent that connection, perhaps better than most, um, is Cap Calloway. So we have variations on a theme number one. And this is the part where I just want to kind of emphasize the fact that tremendous friendships grew up between the players and the musicians. Uh, what, two years ago or a year ago, Larry and I had an opportunity to head down to Houston to uh, talk to Monty Irvin. Um, and I wanted to go down to talk to Mr. Irvin about a whole range of things, uh, mostly about African-American baseball. And we spent, what was it, two hours, Larry, talking about jazz. And he made sure that some of us left with some of his jazz albums because the apartment he was living in just couldn't hold them all. Um, that was his passion. Jimmy Lunsford, that's all he talked about. Uh, and, then, and, and, and from Mr. Irving, you get this sense that there was a, a mutual respect in terms of uh, what he had saw Lunsford do and certainly what Lunsford had, had seen him do. Subsequently, he came to find out that there was also a connection between some of the athletes and the musicians out of some of the traditional black colleges. Monty Irving, for example, uh, Lunsford would also attend Lincoln University. Uh, and what you see are a lot of musicians and ballplayers at least linking up initially uh, in those traditional black colleges. But anyway, here's Cab Calloway. I mean, Calloway's got his own baseball team. He loves baseball. Wherever he goes uh, during the day, his team would play. And then, of course, he would play in the evening uh, at whatever venue he was scheduled to play in. This is from the Boston Chronicle in 33. Um, you know, he, he, his orchestra in off moments is formed into a pretty classy baseball unit. His, his baseball team would play the local amateur teams. And Callaway didn't need this as an advertising stunt. I mean, he, he couldn't get a ticket to a Callaway show. It's not that he's doing this to say, hey, look, I'm in town. Uh, you know, come see my show. This is, I think, out of a pure love um, for the game. Callaway again, and, and, this, and, and I, this is great too. Um, in 1939, uh, the Negro National League pays tribute to its Hall of Famers during a day of recognition at Yankee Stadium. Um, the league asks Cab Callaway for his selections as, as part of the celebration, simply because Callaway knew the black game so well. I mean, he knew these guys personally, but he also knew how good they were. So when the Negro National League decides to respond to Major League Baseball in 1939, when Major League Baseball creates the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Uh, the Negro National League says, well, we're going to have our own Hall of Fame. And who's the person that they contact almost immediately in terms of who should be in this uh, African-American Hall of Fame? It's Cab Calloway. That's a great photo, too, with uh, Cab Calloway and uh, some of the jazz musicians of the era, uh, including Charlie Parker. Um, variations on theme two really deals with language and the way in which baseball language and jazz language spills into each other or bleeds into each other um, throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s. One real quick point. Take a look at somebody like Dan Burley. Um, Dan Burley was the sports editor um, for the Amsterdam News, but Burley is also the person who covers entertainment. So here you have the perfect collision, as far as I'm concerned, in Burley. So sometimes when you read Burley's sports columns, he refers to athletes in these jazz-like ways. Uh, and because language is so important, such a nice window in terms of, of, of how we're thinking, um, uh, this language issue is, is, uh, is interesting. Well, here's the bridge. Uh, Dan Burley says, hey, Cab Calloway gave me a shot of that jump and jive, and now I'm looking for that damn cat. Yep, I'm going way out on a limb 
to nominate my own colored Hall of Fame candidates. So this is uh, at least, you know, and Burley, of course, writes the original handbook of Harlem Jive. And, and, and in somebody's, like Burley's hands, the description of black sports uh, in these jazz-like terms, in these musical terms, is so prominent. Um, same thing with a guy like Lou Blackman uh, from, from Newark, uh, the Newark Herald in 1938, talking about Dick Lundy, who comes and really um, rescues the team. Team's having some difficulty, some trouble, and Dick Lundy comes in to manage the team, and he turns the Eagles from that flat-foot flugy uh, to, the, to the Lundy hop, not the Lindy hop, but the Lundy hop. Um, and that very, very last line is, again, so perfect. Um, it's rhythm, right? Musical rhythm, but in this case, it's rhythm with a stick or rhythm with a mat. So uh, the language, uh, you know, always gives you away uh, in terms of what are the obvious connections or how people are thinking about issues. This probably is 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 oh um, the one that strikes me the most, and that is uh, the relationship between music and sports at the at, at the sports stadiums themselves. If you take a look at the image on the left, <clears throat> not uncommon during uh, doubleheaders to have swing band contests um, between games. Uh, I've also read where there were uh, bands which played between innings, but this notion of, of music and baseball, uh, it's not just you know the opening and it's not just the seventh inning, God bless America, or I know different parks often oftentimes also have their own songs that they play. Um, this is something which is certainly, certainly built into the African-American game. Newspaper article after newspaper article goes over the significant role that music plays um, at these games. And there you have Baltimore, one of the Elks bands in Baltimore playing, uh, sort of in a, in a battle of the bands at Randall's Island. Uh, the second image, or the image on the right, baseball a la nightclub style, somebody had the wonderful idea of actually setting up tables, nightclub tables, behind backstop uh, so that people could watch the game, certainly a great place to watch the game, but that they could also be served a refreshments a la nightclub style. Uh, again, a great line. Uh, it, looks, uh, it looks to us like a cinch to draw the nightlife trade if the latter can stand the fresh air of the afternoon. So um, you run across not just um, language, but in this case, space and the collision of sports and music um, uh, in public space, transforming stadiums into jazz clubs and so forth. Uh, let's chat, if we can, a little bit about um, Kansas City. Um, Kansas City, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, again, is the cradle of jazz. Uh, but it's also really the origins of black baseball. And it's literally on the same, you know, on the same corner uh, of 18th and Vine. Uh, that is the jazz center of Kansas City. It's also the spot where um, Rube Foster creates the first professional black baseball uh, league in 1920. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, literally within a, f a few feet, um, the heart of jazz and the heart of black baseball meet. And it's something which isn't lost on somebody like Buck O'Neill. I mean, Buck O'Neill is gonna tell you, hey, look, New Orleans might have been the birthplace of jazz, but Kansas City is where it grew up. And he goes on to tell you that it's, that's where Rube Foster at the Paseo YMCA in 1920 organizes the Negro National League, but it's also the hot spot. 
for jazz and the hottest spot for music. And that's just a, an image of what 18th and Vine would have looked like uh, back in the era of, um, of Jim Crow, back in the 1930s. Um, it's not just 18th and Vine, it's also the Blue Room. Um, Buck O'Neill will tell you that that was a place where uh, baseball players and musicians congregated, talked, uh, had a good time, let off some steam. And uh, this is, again, is a great quote from O'Neill. O'Neill says, you couldn't toss a baseball without hitting a musician. And you couldn't whistle a tune without having a ball player join in. Uh, we had Satchel Page and Satchmo Armstrong. We had Blues Stadium where we played our ball and the Blues Room uh, at the streets where we had a ball. And again, um, for those of you who know Buck O'Neill, uh, this is just such classic Buck O'Neill. Nobody can tell these stories or conjure up these images uh, quite like he. Uh, Lionel Hampton, same thing. Uh, Lionel Hampton has this long-term love relationship with baseball and the Kansas City Monarchs, um, so much so that uh, they actually make Lionel Hampton an honorary third base coach. And Hampton was just so excited to get his own number, um, number 26, and to be with the Monarchs. And whenever he had an opportunity or whenever he had the chance, um, Hampton would sit on the bench and Larry, I think that's Tabor, right? The catcher is he with? Earl Tabor. And just by the, uh, if you look at the photograph, it, they just look like they're having a wonderful time. Not sure if they're talking baseball, not sure if they're talking music, um, but either way, it's certainly a winner. Maybe they were talking pretty women, too. <laughs> Maybe, I don't <laughs> That's out of my uh, topic area, Fred and Fred Larry. I think I'm going to stick with uh, baseball and music. But uh, Kansas City, again, is Cradle Satchel Page. Um, also found a, a nice welcoming when he got to um, Kansas City. Um, and again, O'Neill. And I'm really borrowing heavily on O'Neill here because he is the jazz expert. Um, and he says, hey, listen, um, we go as a team. Uh, you know, the musicians would come out to the ball game in the afternoon, and at night we would go to the jazz concert. Um, and a couple of musts, you know, if you were in Kansas City, you needed to see the Monarchs play during the day, uh, but also you needed to hear the big bands at the Municipal Auditorium in the afternoon. Uh, if I had to go back in time, and they always, they always ask historians, you know, when would you like to go back in time? And people usually say, well, you know, the Civil War, the regular. I would love to be in North New Jersey in the 1930s. And I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the program, there's a beautiful, beautiful quote by Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones, in which he conjures up the atmosphere at the Grand Hotel, in which ballplayers and musicians hung out and talked. I would have loved to have been there, even for just a minute, to hear that conversation. Now we switch to uh, the second pivotal uh, episode in the history of black baseball. Uh, black baseball is, is running fine. In fact, the 1920s is not just the golden age of baseball, it's the golden age of African-American baseball. Uh, but who could predict in 1929 uh, that this Great Depression, some could predict it, but most of us could not predict that in 1929 this Great Depression would hit us uh, and the devastating impact it would have. Um, certainly one impact um, was the uh, temporary disbandment of the National Negro League. Uh, in 1931, that league ceases to exist, and a lot of the ballplayers try to find uh, 
teams, and they do, but they wind up playing for, for traveling teams or semi-professional teams. Um, they're just trying to make a go of it. But it's Gus Greenlee uh, who, who really provides, first of all, the organizational know-how, uh, but also the much-needed funds to get that uh, National Negro League um, up and running. And um, Gus Greenlee makes his money because he's the owner of perhaps the most successful jazz club in Pittsburgh, um, the Crawford Grill. Uh, he has the money, well, he, he runs a number of different places, but the Crawford Grill is probably the, his most lucrative uh, enterprise. Uh, Gus Greeley also makes a lot of money running numbers. Um, so this interesting relationship between jazz clubs, running numbers, all adds up, at least from my perspective, uh, to have a wonderful ending, which is uh, the renewal uh, of African-American baseball. Uh, by 1933. Stanley Glenn, um, longtime catcher for the Philadelphia Stars, um, writes in his book that Pittsburgh is a great fun place to be. Uh, Greenlee had built his own ball field, very unusual, uh, back, in, uh, back in the day to have an African-American team with its own stadium. Most uh, African-American teams rented stadiums from uh, white teams and white organizations. Uh, but if we go down a little bit, he owns the Crawford Grill, which was the place to eat and socialize. We'd mingle with each other, athletes, of course. Uh, and after uh, we saw the shows, we'd go up and introduce ourselves to the musicians and celebrities who were touring those cities at the same time. Again, just sort of affirming this uh, close relationship that existed um, between the athletes and the musicians based on performance. Uh, it's a performance identity kind of thing, which uh, is fascinating in a lot of ways. The status of black ballplayers, status of black musicians during the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, within the community itself was a very exalted status. And it was based on performance, your ability to do something, which is why the gentlemen that are here today, um, we owe a great deal of uh, respect for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, but your ability to perform uh, puts you in a place uh, much higher than, than the rest of us. Um, Lena Horne was actually one of the uh, uh, performers who had a life, uh, Ella Fitzgerald too, uh, maybe a little, we don't do a whole lot on, on Ella, um, but um, Lena Horne loved baseball. And part of the reason she loved baseball was because she grew up uh, in an apartment right above the Crawford Grill. Her father actually ran numbers for Gus Greenlee. Um, and um, Lena Horne will tell you that in at her childhood, uh, she was introduced to not only a number of musicians uh, who came into the Crawford Grill to play, but also the baseball players. And, and she would have a, a, a lifelong affection for, for both. And Lena Horne, I can't count the number of times Lena Horne threw out a first pitch um, or um, participated in some sort of opening ceremony for African-American games. And Cool Papa Bell, perhaps one of the more um, recognizable names in black baseball, uh, has a wonderful little quote down there. He says, I also liked Lena Horne very much and got to know her pretty well uh, for the reasons we just mentioned. So while my wife Clara was a little jealous, of course, Lena is a beautiful lady, just striking, and she could sing and dance. Her daddy, Teddy, was real proud of her. Teddy was the numbers runner um, for Gus Greenlee, or one of the numbers. Woogie Harris, I guess, was the other. Um, but Teddy, I think, was one of the main ones. 
a wonderful photo again. This is taken during World War II. Uh, Lena Horne sort of entertaining the African American troops. All of us in this room, I think, understand or remember, but members of the younger generation don't, that during World War II, America fought World War II in a segregated, with a segregated army. There were white troops and black troops. Um, you know, yet we have the sort of romantic notion of the USO troops, uh, not the USO, the USO show sort of entertaining the troops. Uh, but most of the newsreels and most of the information we have is sort of the white USO. Uh, there was an equivalent, certainly, of a black USO which entertained black troops. A little bit more to say about that, because F.M. Manley uh, would be very, very much interested in making sure that African-American troops kind of got the entertainment that they deserved. Uh, and Lena Horne, I think, is in that same category. Here she is, um, certainly entertaining, but also talking with, uh, and it's not, and it's so perfect. Who does she go to? She goes to the African-American baseball team on the camp, uh, introduces herself, watches a game, I'm sure, and then entertains later that day. Um, again, with uh, Pittsburgh uh, Mills Brothers, uh, I had a close relationship with Satchel Paige, and they constantly referred to him as the minstrel of the mound. Um, but there was a funny story in one of the newspapers that said that uh, Satchel Paige was toying with the idea. Well, he's toying with two ideas. Number one of being a dancer when he came back from Cuba, because remember a lot of the ball players had played in Latin America and South America during this time uh, under much more favorable conditions than they did here. He came back and had learned a whole series of Cuban dances, Afro-Cuban dances, and fancied himself a wonderful dancer. Uh, that career didn't pan out. He also tried singing, um, and I think that was one of the original times the phrase don't give up your day job uh, was actually heard because when the Mills brothers heard Satchel Paige, he didn't sing as well as perhaps he thought he could sing. Um, but anyway, there was a sort of close relationship between um, the Mills. And again, what a moment in time to see Satchel Paige, the Mills brothers at the Crawford Grill with Gus Greenland. Uh, that sort of combination or collision must have been absolutely breathtaking. Um, we get to the sort of the end of the story now. Uh, black baseball begins its slow decline in the late 1940s. Um, again, mostly as a result of integration. Uh, and the big bands, too, begin their slow decline in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, but here was that quote I was referring to a few minutes ago, if I could be somewhere um, back in time. Uh, poet Amiri Baraka recalls, and this is Newark's Grand Hotel. Uh, he talks about the good feelings uh, that fill the atmosphere as ball players and uh, jazz players engaged in light conversation and intense laughter. Uh, set against the background of an organist named Pitts who performed in the backup to keep it all moving. Uh, this is where Baraka's sense of language is just so perfect. To keep it blue and thoughtful. There's Effa, Effa Manley, the only woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, questions of whether she's African-American or not. Um, we can simply say that uh, here's a woman who identified with her African-American heritage uh, and is the first woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, she was also somebody who was very, very much interested in music and very much interested in entertainment. She would serve as the entertainment coordinator for the NAACP in Essex County in, uh, out of North New Jersey. 
uh, and was fundamental in bringing in a number of major musicians to help that local NAACP and its fundraising drives. Uh, but um, and let me let me just go up a well. We'll stop here. Um, some of the other, of course, great jazz clubs in New York, uh, authors like Don Rogozian and players like Dick Say constantly commented, again, on this close connection and relationship that existed between uh, musicians like Fats Waller uh, and some of the uh, black ball players. But I like Dick Say at the bottom. He says, look, I've been to the Cotton Club, and here he names them Connie's Inn, Small's Paradise, been to all those places. And he says, not with the gangsters. Uh, the musicians always had a table, and the musicians would invite, invite us, the baseball players, to come and uh, sit with them. Um, there was a, a bartender, actually, who was interviewed, not in Newark or New York, but back in Pittsburgh. Uh, and when they talked to him about the ball players and the musicians who would come, and, um, uh, I think it was at the Crawford Grill, he said, you know, the ball players and the, and the musicians occupy the position somewhere between society and vice meaning they weren't society, they weren't rich, they weren't you know, born with a silver spoon in their mouths, nor were they the gangsters who made their money sometimes illegally. Uh, they were in between. These were guys who, with a tremendous amount of honor and dignity and persistence, uh, made their money, carved a sense of freedom for themselves, again, based on their ability, based on their ability to perform. Uh, in this case, uh, baseball and music. I always thought that was a beautiful sort of comment um, that, that ball players and musicians were caught somewhere between society and bodies. Um, there's Dan Burley again, Dan Burley and Gus Greenlee. Again, the connections are endless. Um, and if you take a look at jazz and baseball, especially in a place like Harlem, I'm not going to go into this because I promised we'd get you out of here by 3 o'clock. So I'm going to speed up a little bit here. Uh, but um, if I had a little bit more time, we would talk a little bit about the jazz clubs in Harlem um, and the connection between jazz and, um, and, and black baseball in New York. But I do want to move on just a little bit. Uh, it's not just the players and the musicians. It's also lyricists, arrangers, and composers which uh, have this collision with sport and music. And Andy Razif is probably the best example. Andy Razif is a semi-professional um, pitcher. But Andy Razif writes a lot of the lyrics for Fats Waller. I mean, Razif, the, the Razif-Waller um, collaboration, I mean, produces, you know, so many wonderful, um, wonderful songs. But uh, Razif never lost his love for baseball. And uh, <clears throat> Razif pens this poem, which could easily be set to music, and sends it off to Effa Manley. Uh, um, and, and, she, and, and what, what Razza says in this little letter down here is, listen, uh, I know that you are about to play a white team, right? And what I want you to do is I want you to read this poem to your players before you go out and play that white team to give them some sense of inspiration, some sense of purpose. I don't think they needed it, but this is a wonderful way of providing that um, sense of purpose and, uh, and motivation. Um, Razif is one of the ones who understands that the struggle for civil rights um, takes place in many different arenas, not just the courts, not just uh, in the state legislatures or at the White House. The struggle for civil rights uh, often takes place in unlikely places, like, like baseball games. So the struggle for equality, um, at least in, in Razif's words here, is 
Uh, you can show who you are um, on a baseball field. You can create a sense of equality uh, just as easily that way. Um, Continental League, which was a, a rival league to the National and American League in 1921, doesn't last very long. Um, but it was an attempt to, to have the first integrated baseball league. The league only lasts about two weeks before it folds. Um, but Andy Razif is so taken by the fact that um, the organizer of this league, a guy by the name of Andy Lawson, has black teams and white teams in the same, in the same league. Um, and, he, and it's a different kind of integration. It's not picking one great African-American player and having him on your team. It's, it's bringing an entire team of African-Americans into your league. And uh, this Continental League uh, had uh, the Cleveland Colored Giants, they had the Baltimore Pilgrims, black teams, first attempt at a professional integration of baseball. And Razov looks at this and says, you know, this is what democracy is all about. Um, and he writes again this wonderful poem. So in the hands of Andy Razif uh, is just a great, great writer um, talking about this um, critical collision. Don Redmond, I've become more fascinated with Redmond over the years as, a, as an arranger. Uh, Redmond would have made a great manager. There's no question about that. His ability to, to picture talent, his ability to um, bring uh, you know, his musicians. I mean, the way in which you manage a baseball team I'm becoming more and more convinced. It's very, very much akin to how an arranger sort of arranges his or her orchestra. Uh, and Redmond becomes, for me, uh, again, a great baseball guy, too, um, but the classic example of, um, of manager slash arranger. Uh, the image on the right is, 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 is so interesting. Um, Redmond here is pictured with a number of African-American baseball players who are on their way to Puerto Rico and other Caribbean countries um, on a sort of like a, an international, I guess, barnstorming tour. And what they say at the very, very bottom is they're there with Redmond because Redmond is in the process of trying to put together a um, musical history of black baseball. Uh, no one has ever found that musical history of black baseball, but uh, if, it, uh, if it is out there, that would be a wonderful, wonderful um, treasure to find. Um, bring it up to date a little bit more. Uh, well, maybe not. Satchmo Armstrong had his team, just like Callaway had his team, the Secret Nine. Uh, but if you bring it up to date a little bit more, you have Oscar Peterson and Count Basie uh, in the 1970s coming up with an album called Satch and Josh. Perfect, um, because there weren't, you know, when you take a look at African-American baseball, uh, Satchel Page had a personality, um, a big personality. Um, Josh Gibson was very different. Um, and they had two very, very different uh, styles of play. These are two men who uh, could not have been different in their approach to the game, could not have been uh, you know, different in, in the way they conducted and lived their lives. And here's a great way for Oscar uh, Peterson and Count Basie to say, look, we have two different jazz styles. Um, and very, very much akin to uh, the different artistic form that we see with Page and Gibson. It's such a perfect um, title for an album. Um, again, based on uh, different aesthetic approaches, in one case to baseball, and, uh, and in this case to music. Um, support and solidarity. The uh, musicians were always there to help the ballplayers. The ballplayers are always there to help the musicians. You know, we lose Chick Webb uh, way too early. Chip Webb dies really at the height of his, uh, at the, his musical career, leaves his band really in, 
I mean, first of all, you know, his, his band is in disarray. I mean, Ella Fitzgerald helps, I understand. But here you have the Chick Webb benefit uh, at Yankee Stadium, <clears throat> including which um, uh, hosted by the New York Black Yankees. And they were able to get a significant amount of money to help Chick Webb's family uh, and also uh, to help the band sort of pull things together during this difficult time. Effa Manley, the same thing. Um, she understood that African-American troops were not always enamored by the entertainment of the USO. Uh, it's a different aesthetic. Uh, if you're African-American, you want to hear jazz, you want to hear something which uh, is, is closer to your heart. Effa Manley knew that. Used the team bus, the Newark Eagles baseball team bus, to bring jazz musicians to Fort Dix, New Jersey to entertain the African-American troops. Um, so there is this other, uh, I think, great part of it, too, which deals with, or it goes beyond music and goes to, to deeper issues of um, support, solidarity, and community. Um, this is just for fun. Baltimore Afro-American reports uh, that in 1931, uh, one of the uh, better African-American catchers, Louis Santop, sometimes referred to as Big Bertha, a uh, tremendous home run hitter, uh, just a, a beautiful body, a beautiful man. Um, he is asked by WELK, and my sense is that that's a radio station out of uh, Philadelphia, um, uh, to, to talk about organized Negro baseball or the history of it from 1885 uh, to 1931. Take a look at what follows that. Uh, it's a musical program fitting the occasion, will be rendered by a sextet. Rap Dixon, Frank Warfield, whom Larry mentioned a few minutes ago, Chappie Bird, John Henry Pop Lloyd, who Larry mentioned a few minutes ago, Biz Mackey, who has all kinds of connections to Baltimore, because it's Biz Mackey who teaches Roy Campanella, really, um, to catch, uh, and Jim Towns. And that's it. Uh, I talked too fast, I think, because I needed to, uh, to kind of hit my, uh, my, my time mark here. Uh, I'm not going to go into project updates. That's not, that's, you're probably not interested in that. There are new directions that Larry and I are taking this project. We are taking this project off in a number of different directions. So what I will do is say thank you for your attention, and I would be glad, and so would Larry, to entertain any questions you might have on this collision between sport and music and what it tells us about the history of black baseball. Yeah, let's take some questions. Thank you. Uh, yeah. We've got another little piece to share with you at the very end, but I see a gentleman's hand in the back there. Yeah. I have two questions. Uh, one is, how old was Chick Webb when died? Did you hear those questions? Chick Webb, when he died? And how old was Satch when he came into the majors, and how effective was it? You answer that one, and I'll answer the page one. I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, uh, Webb dies, what, in the late 30s, I think. Uh, I don't have the exact date of Chick Webb's death. I, I mean, I would have to research that. Uh, except to say, you know, um, just to reinforce the fact that he was young, that he was sort of cut down in the prime of his career. Um, but I think in the late 30s is when, is when, uh, when Satchel came in, Satchel came into the majors in, in the midsummer of 1948 with the Indians and Bill Feck, and he went six and one in the last half of the season. That's pretty effective. He was 42 going on 48 or maybe 52. We're not sure. He played that one for all it was worth. You know? One time a, a reporter uncovered the, 
the fact that his mother uh, said he was born on such and such a time, and Satchel said, oh, no, he, she's thinking of my brother, not, not me. He's well, very if you actually go to Satchel Paige's grave, there's a, um, what is it? There's a big question mark. Could be. Yeah, it would be appropriate. Day. You know sure. when he died. Nobody yeah. will ever know yeah. when he was born. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, gentleman here. Um, I just recently learned that the neighbor leagues themselves actually had graves, but had white players playing on that for death. How early did that happen? How prevalent was that? Very late and very rare. It's, I think, 48 that the first white player comes onto a team. And then a few afterwards, as the leagues go into decline, uh, into the late 40s and through the 1950s. And it was more, well, I don't want to say novelty, um, because you know the black and white playing together isn't that. But it was certainly something they helped to build gate with. Why yeah. did the white players play on a black team? The goal of the minor league leader is to get to the show. Yes. And obviously, they're not yeah. to get to the show. No, I, I think I don't know uh, how to answer that in specifics, other than to say that I'm sure it was personal peculiar circumstances in a given situation where a player, for whatever reasons, attracted to, would simply do it, probably not expecting to go up to the majors. Um, there's a wonderful book called Chappie and Me. Uh, Chappie Johnson was a legend in black baseball around the turn of the century and through the first couple of decades of the 20th century. And then he was a great barnstormer. And uh, he... Uh, takes teams all over the place. And this particular book, which is maybe fictional but maybe isn't, because it's set historically beautifully in the 1930s, is the story of a white kid that they pick up because they needed someone who was hurt uh, on the team to take the place of, and the kid actually blackens his face, puts a you know, black shoe polish on or something, and plays for Chappie and his all-stars in barnstorming for several months in the 1930s. And we have other instances of that. There's an instance out in... Well, it's kind of relevant, maybe, to your question. Uh, in in uh, um, in Staten Island in 1947, uh, Danny Gardella, who's a white player playing for a Staten Island pickup team, and a black team comes in. And, well, see, I'm I'm stretching it beyond. Let me just quickly cut this off and open it for more questions. Gardella had been banned from baseball because he had gone down to Mexico to play, and, and that was verboten by the commissioner. And Satchel and this all-star team comes in, Black Yankees, matter of fact, playing for the Black Yankees at the time. And they start the game out, and a telegram comes from major league offices to Staten Island, of all places, into the second or third inning, saying if anybody plays against this outlawed player, Danny Gardello, who happened to be on this team, uh, they will never be allowed to play Major League Baseball. And the black players have to stop playing. They have to stop the game at that point in time because now the majors are open to them and they thought this might be something that would you know, prevent them then from getting into the majors. But that actually operates within a broader context too because during this time, um, the Negro Leagues opened to women as well. So you yeah, have this expansion true. of who is playing in the Negro Leagues. There are white players, but there's three women. <clears throat> Tony Stone is the first. Connie Morgan will play. And then a little bit later, I think, in, in, in uh, this week or next week, 
uh, the woman who did the biography of Mamie Pina Johnson, uh, an incredibly talented uh, African-American woman pitcher, uh, also joins. Um, I think she plays for the Indianapolis Clowns. So it's, it's a time when the league is expanding, um, you know, who plays in the league. It's not just white players, but it's also women. Black, all three yeah, black, were black. black, all three. Yeah, they were not no, absolutely not. No, that, they, there's a tremendous amount of friction, uh, tension between the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League and African-American women. Uh, that league pretty much made it clear that it didn't want African-American women. And if you have seen this movie, uh, League of Their Own, there is that wonderful scene where uh, a ball gets away from one of the white women playing and an African-American woman who is working at the park picks the ball up and throws it. Uh, that's, that's the message that you've left us out. Subtle in the movie, but uh, not subtle in the minds of the women who lived during that era. Yeah, another question from this channel. Uh, I was just thinking about this. Uh, Babe Ruth was um, so, some black, uh, I think he, he got the Barnes form in black American baseball when he had a free time, and he was popular, and he thought they were very good. And I think he didn't like the, um, the fact that they weren't allowed to play. It was something like that. What did he like? Something, but Babe never hesitated to play against blacks in barnstorming games all across his career. Frequently, you'll find records of those games. Um, there's a suggestion that Pop Lloyd and Babe were close friends. That appears in a black newspaper about 1930, the Chicago Defender, which strikingly enough says that uh, on off days, Pop could be found in the Yankee Stadium dugout with Babe Ruth, his good friend. Uh, we've never been able to get uh, beyond that into Babe actually making you know statements about, but it's very clear that Babe you know didn't feel any animosity towards it all, or was that ever again? Oh, geez, he, he loved the game of baseball and knew these guys could play. And there were a lot of players back there like that. Yeah, 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 sure. Is there is there a relation or is there the Kansas City Royals name uh, chose their name? Did they chose it to try to draw a link to the Kansas City Monarchs team that there's a similar similarity there between Monarchs? Gee, I don't I don't know. I I never thought of that. I I don't. When do the Royals come into existence? Yeah. See, black baseball is is still forgotten in '67. Uh, it won't start to be remembered in any significant way. And anybody who wants a book to start with, well, I'll be selling my book outside afterwards. If you'd like to buy it, I'd be happy to autograph it for you. But I always say the place to start is with the first book, which is still very strong after 35 years when it was first published. It's called Only the Ball Was White by Bob Peterson in 1970. It's a sports classic. And that really starts to bring black baseball forward in the consciousness of it. So I would say, in answer to your question, probably not. They weren't really focused on black baseball back then for the Royals to have done that. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm sorry. No, yes, sir. <laughs> I probably need a hand. No. Anyway, I don't know if John was aware, but the. Uh, I guess the Montreal uh, Montreal got its major league uh, team in 1967 or something. It was named the Montreal Warriors. No, Kansas City Warriors. Kansas City Warriors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Montreal Expos in 16. Okay. I, then I yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. So, the International League had a 
That's right. That's the team that Jackie plays on in 46 when Branch Rickey assigns him there. Yeah. Yeah. No, but the other side to it was Kansas City, too, because Kansas City is such a seedbed for black baseball, you would think that they would have. And maybe they did. I'm just speculating because I don't know. Yeah, but I, I'd be surprised because black baseball is just the old black baseball. They're just not very much in the limelight or conscious of. Yes, in the back there, young lady. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, is he ever memorable? Leon Day. Uh, I, I can't talk about Leon without welling up inside a little bit in terms of my emotional feeling for that man. He was just a wonderfully funny and uh, delightfully witty and self-effacing and humble, and he had every reason to be as ostentatious and as proud as Satchel was because he was as good a pitcher as Satchel, Leon Day, was. Uh, um, he, uh, every year, after 1987, I don't know, again, some of you ought to know more background on Leon. He pitched, came out of this area in the 1930s and ended up with the Newark Eagles in 34, 35 uh, as one of their star pitchers. We did a documentary with Leon. I can still see him, you know, that look on his face. In fact, it's a section from this documentary, and he says, uh, when they told me they were going to pay me to play baseball, he says, I thought they were crazy. I'd play for nothing, he said. And uh, uh, after 87, uh, when, uh, who went in in 80? Oh, Ray went in in 87, Ray Dandridge. No one was elected to the Hall of Fame until 95. Every year, Leon was name would come up in the Veterans Committee, and he'd lose by a vote or two votes or whatever. And finally, in 95, they voted him in. And of course, his teammate, Max Manning, had to go into the hospital room where Leon was and give him the news because Leon was on his deathbed. A week after he was voted in, he passed away. And his widow, Geraldine, who's a beautiful lady, spoke at Cooperstown in 1995, the induction speech. And I consider that to be the second best induction speech ever given at Cooperstown. And I've looked at a lot of those Cooperstown speeches. I'm going to show you a little piece from the first as we end the program today. But Leon was very special. Um, who do you consider to be the greatest um, black baseball player before the major leagues? And, and also, you didn't answer the question about Satchel Page. Did he um, play more than one season? Yeah, he did. He played uh, uh, with Cleveland. Uh, then he hooks on with the Browns when Bill Vec goes out to St. Louis. And he's still pitching. He's in the All-Star team in 52, I think, Major League All-Star team, or maybe it was 53, 52, I think. And then he keeps coming back. <laughs> 1961, we have him in a game in Yankee Stadium. It's not a Major League game, but he's the, the star attraction for an All-Star game. He still keeps pitching and pitching. Uh, he had a good year in 52, certainly. Because, I'll say 52, I may be off a year, because he was uh, you know, picked for the All-Star team that year. Yeah. Uh, John Henry Popoloid. Note how quickly I answered that, too, without any hesitancy at all. You don't want to get me going on that. Incidentally, I don't want to forget something, too. I wrote it down. Uh, there was a wonderful player here from this area. He played with the Elites for a while. He played up in Atlantic City for a wonderful team called the Farley All-Stars and used to come up to Atlantic City every year for our big program that we do up there. His name was Bert Simmons. And uh, Audrey is here today. Audrey? 
and we have a museum here in, Atlanta, in, in Baltimore in this area that Audrey and, and Ray Banks have been instrumental in putting forward in terms of preserving this history. So that's something to be aware of too. Other questions? I don't think he got in, as I recollect, which always surprises me. Am I right about that, Bob? He didn't, no. Uh, the Indians uh, played in 48 in the World Series, and uh, he, he didn't get in for whatever reasons, I guess. It was just the way the games broke out. I've never looked at it that close. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the first uh, African-American to get a World Series ring? Uh, I assume Jackie. Oh, well, no. The Dodgers don't win until 55. Uh, who's the first to get a world? That's interesting. I imagine it's actually Joe Black is the first African American to start a World Series game. He starts it in 1952 when he goes 15 and one or something in relief, I think. Doby is there. Doby in 48 with the Indians. Okay. Yeah, Doby in 48 with the Indians. Yeah. Yeah. Audrey? Yeah. I'd just like to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, I enjoyed your presentation about how music, jazz in particular, and baseball sort of dovetail. And when you showed the part about Cab Calloway mm -hmm. being such a baseball fan, I I just had to explain what what a coincidence. Currently, I am working with a group called Friends of the Arena Players, and we are producing a drama, musical drama, about Cab Calloway's sister, Blanche Calloway, and Satchmo, Louis Armstrong. They had a thing going there for a while. The writer of this play, Kame Murphy, is the daughter of Cab Calloway. Oh, and I am delighted to be working with her practically day in and day out right now as we prepare for this play, which is being presented on November 11th and 12th at the Furman Templeton Academy on Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, the play is called Satchmo and Baby Dolly and incorporates information about Cab Calloway, the jazz of the time, Pennsylvania Avenue, the way it used to be. Mm. All of that is being presented in a great musical capsule. Oh. So if you can make it, it's a wonderful play, November 11th and, it's, and the 12th, and it's great. It's all on the internet, so check it out. I hope everybody took out their pens and pencils and wrote that down. November the 11th, November the 12th, where, Audrey? At the Furman Templeton Academy on Pennsylvania Avenue. Okay, Furman Templeton Academy on Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah, it's an extension of a lot of the stuff that Bob gave us today. Other comments or questions? Well, let me, let me finish this off with something I think is very special. I want to take you, I said I was going to frame this at the beginning and then kind of finish it at the end with another piece of the frame. And this is a, a, one of my favorite places to go to. 
Let's go down to Cooperstown. Let me just introduce it, and then you can pull it up. Uh, we're going to show you a little. Uh, we're going to take you on a little visit to to Cooperstown, to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's July, whatever, the twenty-something of nineteen hundred and eighty-seven, and something special is happening. On this day, on this occasion, for the first time in now seven years or so. Uh, an African-American baseball player from the Negro Leagues is going to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. His name is Raymond Dandridge, Raymond Emmett Dandridge. He played third base as well as Brooks Robinson, Baltimore. Uh, is somebody going to object to this because you love Robinson? Well, I, I would say that Ray played it as good as Robinson did. Monty Irvin, who played against uh, Ray, with Ray, and obviously also saw Brooks played it the way he played it. Would when he, he would say, oh, they were the same, similar in terms of how they fielded that position. Ray was bow-legged like this. I can't spread my legs wide enough. They they were they, they said about Ray that you could drive a truck through his legs, huh? but you couldn't get a ground ball or line drive through those legs. And here he is in Cooperstown in 1987, finally about to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Let, let's show this piece. I never knew that the money would be there, the fame and all those kind of things. It was just, you dedicate yourself to be the best you can be. That's and, right. and had it not been for guys like yourself, I know I wouldn't be there. So I appreciate it and it's good talking to you. And we enjoy, we appreciate you saying these things because, mm -hmm. and we're happy for you. Well, yeah, I, I'm glad I know, that yeah. the money's there for you. You understand? Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't there when we played. I understand. No, it wasn't there. If we didn't love the game, then we wouldn't have played it. Because yeah. for the money, it, was, it wasn't. Right, but that's what I feel. I love yeah, the game. Love I like game, to play. You see me? You know, I'm yeah. serious. I'm oh, a serious sure, ball player. Sure, sure. But I'm smiling and having yeah, a good time. There was no question that this country and this, uh, this sport that, I, that I'm now in charge of was not fair. And it took Jackie Robinson 40 years ago, together with Branch Rickey and Happy Chandler, to, to make it fair on the field to play. Now this year is a year we're dedicating to be sure it's fair off the field to play, so we can be an example again. And for Ray to come in this year, I think, has much more meaning. It's a, it's a year of focus. Right now, everybody asking what my greatest thrill was. But my biggest thrill came when, March the 3rd, Mr. Ed Stack called my house. Yeah, you know, like you do, I was resting, my wife was in the backyard. So I answered the phone. The phone call said, I'm trying to find Ray Dandridge. I say, I'm Ray Dandridge. Say, are you Ray Dandridge, the ball player? I say, yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he said, your life has changed. I say, what do you mean my life has changed? I, I, you know how it is. You, sometimes you get some of them cramped calls. You know? <laughs> So afterward, me and them talk a while, and then he said, I'm Ed Stack, the president of the Hall of Fame, and you had just been elected for the Hall of Fame.
Now, I want to sincerely thank each and every veteran on the committee allowing me to smell the roses. My only question is, why did you take so long? <laughs> I can see in the audience, I got a, quite a few friends, north, east, south, west, and these people have traveled a long way, and I want to thank each and every one for coming to Cooperstown to see me elected in the hall. Thank you. In, in closing, let me say, if I had it all over to, if I had it to do all over again, I think I'll do the same way. I love the game of baseball, and I hope now today look like baseball love me. So now I'm going to say goodbye, and I hope and I love you all. May you never know how much I love you. Thank you, and God bless you all. And the music kicks in. The music kicks in. How appropriate that the music kick in. Generally, at these programs, a question will be asked when we have the veteran Negro Leaguers up front, and of course, we've got two fine gentlemen with us today. You get a chance to talk with them afterwards. Uh, the question will pop up, well, you know, weren't you angry? Weren't you bitter? Weren't you upset that you didn't get the chance that you should have had to play in the majors? They wanted to play in the majors. Sure, they did. But they also enjoyed very much what they were doing in their own leagues. They loved the game of baseball. They asked Buck O'Neill that one day, and Buck responded in this way. He says, there's nothing like getting your body to do everything that it has to do on a baseball field. I can see Buck with a smile coming on his face. He says, it's as good as sex. It's as good as music, he would say. Waste no tears for me. I didn't come along too early. I was right on time. He was. So were these guys. So were the Baltimore Elite Giants and, and the Baltimore Black Sox and the Atlantic City Bacharach Giants. So was Bert Simmons. So there was the rest of society that wasn't on time. And we're privileged to be able to help you catch up today a little bit with what was missed too much back then. Thank you very much. Um, we'd like to invite you to um, join us out in the hallway first. Um, we have some baseball-themed refreshments. Maybe you can smell them all the way in here. And um, 
Larry Hogan is going to be have copies of his book for sale, and you may also chat with him and Robert Savornik afterwards and ask them questions. Thank you both so much. We really appreciate it, and we hope that you will all um, take time to see the exhibit downstairs. Tell your friends about it. It'll be here until December 9th, and um, we really hope that everybody in Baltimore will have a chance to see this um, um, this really wonderful baseball history um, in, graphically represented. So thanks again, everybody, for coming, and be careful out there.